Thank you for taking the time to listen to the sermon from Hope Church Toronto North. It is our prayer that through this, you are challenged by the Word of God, you are built up in love, and that you are drawn more to the person and work of Jesus Christ. We want to remind you, this is never meant to substitute God's good plan for you to be present in a local church under the care of qualified elders. If you do live in the North Toronto area and are looking for a local church, we invite you to join us at one of our Sunday morning gatherings. Our desire is that God would use this to encourage you with the hope we have in Jesus. Well, good morning, Hope Church Toronto North. Um, my name is Andrew Chia. I get to serve as one of the pastors at Hope Church Toronto West. So greetings from your neighbors, I guess, on the west side of the city. Uh, it's our joy to, to come. It really feels like we're coming to family whenever we get to, to visit Toronto North. Uh, and it's just our joy to watch from afar and see what God has done in this church more and more and more. It was my privilege when I got the call from Marvin to just jump into this, your series, A Letter to the Philippians, Side by Side. And today we're going to be talking about peace. Peace. True peace. Is there a condition that's more sought after? Is there a condition or a quality that's more desirable? Peace. True peace. But peace can often be so rare. Peace can often be so elusive. You know, as I was preparing for this sermon this week, I made an observation. The internet is a really bad place to look for answers on peace. If you peeked into my study, you probably would have found me Googling peace and related words for five minutes. And what you find is a lot of opinions, but no consensus. You find a lot of views, but no answers. And peace remains elusive. No peace. But the Bible is stunningly opposite because not only does the Bible give a confident and consistent set of answers for peace, the Bible is confident that you can find peace in abundance. 2 Peter 1, Jude 2, they even, Paul even prays in these passages for, pray, for peace to be multiplied. Not just added, multiplied. Literally the opposite of division, multiplied. Multiplied into different spheres and different areas of life. Work, finances, relationships, peace, multiplied. And that's what our passage is about today. The multiplication of peace. The multiplication of peace. And that's the title of our sermon today. Specifically, our passage is going to look at how peace has to be multiplied in the areas of conflict and anxiety. Conflict and anxiety. Conflict, external turmoil, and anxiety, internal turmoil. So let's turn to our text now. It's found in Philippians chapter 4, verse 2 to 9. And as you're turning there, I'd just like to give you some context. There, this is this one passage. It's brilliant because we see here Paul moving from theology to application, from theory to practice. He's really, really specifically concrete, especially in this passage. It's like when a parent goes from, hey, kids, clean your room, to, hey, kid, pick up that toy. He gets extremely concrete. I mean, 
If you look back at your whole series, back at the book of Philippians, see, he's talked really broadly about being of one mind in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 and on. But in our passage, he specifically applies it to being of one mind in conflict. He even names names when it comes to disagreements in the church. See, in the past in Philippians, he's spoken broadly about rejoicing in response to suffering. But suffering is a broad paintbrush. Today, he says, we're going to look at one area. We're going to look at anxiety. Rejoicing among, amidst anxiety. In early on in Philippians, in Philippians 3, he talks about the pursuit of Christ. In our passage, he lists specific virtues to actually pursue, to dwell on, to practice. Do you see how in this passage, he's going from broad to narrow. He's going from theory to practice. And as he gets there, there is one ingredient that keeps coming up again and again and again. It's folded into every single course as we go through this, and it's the ingredient of peace. And like a beautiful three-course meal, he progressively introduces richer and richer spiritual realities concerning peace. Here's the first course of the meal. Number one, peace is paid for, joyfully unite. Peace is paid for, joyfully unite. Take a look at verse two of Philippians chapter four. He says this, I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Right away, you're brought into this conflict that's going on between two women, Eodia and Syntyche. We don't know much about the nature of the conflict, but one thing is clear, there's disagreement. Disagreement in the Lord. And the passage is really stunning because it's this blend of both love and directness. Love and directness. Take a look at some of the words in these passages. Uh, uh, Paul is saying, uh, he, he uses the word entreat. I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche. He, Paul chooses not to command, he's choosing to implore them. Come, come, listen. Yet at the same time, he's being really, really frank. Uh, D.E. Garland, a commentator, says, Paul throws off his covert allusions to their disagreement and speaks frankly. He's hitting the nail right on the head. He names Eodia and Syntyche. He's looking them straight in the eye. And he's in the presence of the church, he's saying, hey, let's not beat around the bush. You both have to be united. Do you see that blend? He's direct. He talks right to them, but he's so loving. I entreat you. Agree in the Lord. He turns to those around, uh, and he appeals to them, and he says, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. He's saying, come in. He's not commanding. He's not being domineering. He's saying, come. He's inviting in. And he sets the temperature for what conflict resolution in the church should really look like. It's remarkably uniting. And in case you miss it, he, right here in these verses, he throws in an image as well to tie it all together, to really unite us. Look at verse 3. Even in the first part of verse 3, he gives this image. The phrase true companion, do you see it? It literally means true yoke fellow. True yoke fellow. And it evokes the image of two oxen that are yoked together, shoulder to shoulder, pulling on a yoke together as they plow the field. You see, he's saying to these women, will you be shoulder to shoulder with me? Will you be side by side with me? Would you put on the yoke with me and pull this plow? Can we stand side by side, church, to help these women? D.E. Garland, again, explains what the word help here. It's a picturesque verb that literally means take hold together with. Do you see the image? He's saying, would you put the yoke on with me? 
Would you be side by side with me? Would you take hold of these women together and help them? It's an invitation from Paul. Would you grab this with me? Would you put your hand together with me on the plow? Amazingly enough, there are a lot of churches that get split by conflict. And I think one of the reasons is because they fail to have this image. They fail to have the image of let's, let's grab the yoke together, shoulder side by side, and let's take hold of this together. Two things in particular tend to happen when conflict hits the church. The first is indifference. Indifference. It's none of my business. It's none of my business. But you know what you're saying when you're saying it's none of my business? You're looking at that yoke and you're saying, nope, I'm not picking that up. You're looking at what Christ says in Galatians 6 when he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And you're saying, no, I'm not going to do that. If you have syntyches and if you have Iodias in your life and your response is none of my business, the call is to repent. You have to stop. You have to say, Lord, I repent because I want, I want to fulfill the law of Christ. I will take up the burden and put it on my shoulders. Indifference has no space in this passage. But there's another, there's another danger. It's on the other side of it. It's not indifference. It's side-taking. There's a Syntyche camp and a, and a Yodia camp. I'm on Syntyche's side or I'm on Iodia's side. And do you know what you're doing when this happens? Instead of plowing together, you go in opposite directions. You break the yoke. You break the backs of the peacemakers. And the field, instead of becoming plowed, it becomes trampled. Be sobered by the words of 1 Corinthians 3. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. Don't trample it. Here's a question. Do you have Iodias and Syntyches in your life? Do you have people in your life where you know there's some disagreement, Christian brothers and sisters who are in conflict? Here's a piece of advice. Get off the sidelines and stop side-taking. Get off the sidelines and stop side-taking. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, Matthew chapter 5. And you may be hearing this now, and you're thinking, okay, I'm in, I'm in. But how do I do this? How do I help the Iodias and the Syntyches in my life? Well, thankfully, God hasn't left us, uh, given us an empty toolbox as peacemakers. In fact, he's given us the strongest glue to unite the Iodias and Syntyches of our lives, and it's the glue of the gospel. Look at verse 2 again. Pay attention to the end. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. In the Lord. How does agreement come? In the Lord. Take a scan of the first four verses of chapter four. The phrase in the Lord happens three times in just these four little verses. Verse three similarly says, in the gospel. And the whole point is this. We don't need to make peace from scratch. We make peace in the Lord because the gospel has already made peace. A, a few scriptures on the screen for you. Colossians 1.20 says this, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He made peace by the blood of his cross already done. Ephesians 3 continues to, to tell us what our agreement in the Lord looks like. 
It's on the screen, it says, for he himself is our peace. Not only did he make peace at the cross, he is our peace. Check this out. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying the glue is Jesus. He himself is our peace. He made peace between us by the blood of his cross. He made us one. He tore down the wall. The, the wall is already down. Peace has already been purchased. Our peacemaking mission between one another is not between warring enemies. It's between already reconciled family members of God. Christ has already turned enemies into friends, strangers into families. He's already paid the debt to do that, to have us adopted in, and he's done that all by his blood. All we have to do is to just keep the family get-togethers going. We're already family. Peace is already paid for. So look what you have in common. And in case, and in case you miss it, that's what he's getting to in all of the little features in verse 3. Look at verse 3. In verse 3, he says, they have labored side by side. We're side by side co-laborers. Other translations say they've contended side by side. That word contended, it's military language. It's saying, with Christ as our king, we're in the same brigade. We're in the same platoon. We parachute out of the, of the plane together for God's kingdom. We fight side by side, not hand to hand or face to face. Peace is already paid for. We're on the same team. Look at verse 3 again. It says, whose names are in the book of life. Revelation 3, verse 5, and Revelation 17, verse 8, and many other passages, it tells us that the book of life refers to the list of God's elect written from the foundation of the world who will receive eternal life. What he's saying here is this, you have so much in common. Not only are you family members, not only are you fellow soldiers and fellow co-laborers, you are fellow heirs. You are fellow sharers of Christ's inheritance. You both have your name written in the will. That's why you can unite the peace has already been bought. It's already been paid for. Your co-laborers, co-inheritors. This poem, that's what Paul means when he says, agree in the Lord. You're family members. Stop fighting. And Tim Keller, I love this, captures Paul's message so beautifully. He says this, sisters, remember where you're from. You're citizens of heaven. Remember where you're going. The glory. Realize and remember what Christ has done so that this could be true. If your minds are filled with that, where's the pettiness coming from? How could there be divisiveness in the presence of those ideas? If you think about that, how could you be petty? How could you be divisive? How the moroseness lift up your thoughts? He says, lift up your eyes. You're not seeing the big picture. That's the only possible way you could be so upset with each other. Oh, but when you see the imperishable can never be taken away, always there, inheritance in the Lord, you can do what the next verse says, rejoice in the Lord always, even amidst difficulty, even amidst stormy relationships. Look at verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. See the word there? In the Lord, always. Again, I will say, rejoice. And you don't just get joy. The big picture gives you reasonableness. Look at verse five. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The word reasonableness is really interesting. It's an interesting word because the original Greek word doesn't translate really cleanly into English. There just isn't a one-to-one -one mapping. It's this combination of patience and gentleness and graciousness, being open-handedness, 
and of course being reasonable, a calmness. It's a radical evenness of, temple, of temper and being basically even-keeled. And when I first read this, I thought, that's a strange verse to put in there. What does reasonableness have to do with any of this? Well, I recalled a story in Luke chapter 10. It's a beautiful story. Luke sends the 72 out for ministry, and they return, and they've reported probably the greatest ministry update letter ever. They said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your, in our, in your name. And Jesus' response is this. He says, I've seen Satan fall from heaven, and I'm going to give you the authority to tread on the enemy. All amazing things. But this is the kicker. He says, nevertheless, don't rejoice in that but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In the book of life. Is that familiar? Reasonableness comes from eternal perspective. Hope Church Toronto North, you will have ministry wins, but don't lose sight of this and don't get too over the moon. But you'll also have ministry losses. In that regard, also don't lose perspective. Don't get overly crushed. Your names are still in the book of life. Have this reasonableness. Because this is what's going to happen in your ministry losses. I assure you, there will be times you don't see eye to eye with your ministry partners or your leaders. There will be times where you'll suffer the ministry losses and you will lose your reasonableness. There, there, there's going to be times where you're talking amongst, among, amongst yourself and disagreement is going to creep in like Iodia and Syntyche. Maybe, you would, maybe right now you're co-laborers, but later on you're... Like Iodia and Syntyche, things are breaking down. You're making comments, I don't know why they would have done that. I, I don't understand why they would have chosen this particular action. I don't know what they meant when they said this. And perhaps you might want to meet with your partners or your leaders to talk about it, and you should. But can I ask you to do this one thing? Going into that meeting, can you walk in this way? With every step that you take, meditate on this. We are co-laborers. We are co-heirs. We are co-inheritors. Both of our names are in the book of life. With every step, you say, we have more in common than, than, than not. That you would pray, God, give me joy. God, give me eternal perspective. God, give me reasonableness. That even in our wins, I rejoice that my name is in the book of life. And in our losses, when we disagree, we say, you know what? Our names are still in the book of life together. Do you know what that would do? If that's the temperature of every one of your iron out our differences meeting, your church will stand firm, I assure you. Reasonableness. Number one, peace is paid for, joyfully unite. Peace is pay paid for, joyfully unite. Here's number two, the second chorus when it comes to peace. The peace of God is near. Don't be anxious, pray. The peace of God is near. Don't be anxious, pray. Paul continues in verse five. Look at verse five. He says, the Lord is at hand. Meditating on these great spiritual realities, Paul sums up and he transitions to the next passage with this beautiful truth. The Lord is at hand. He's at hand. He's close to us, near to us. And the Lord is at hand. He's gonna return soon. It's both a present assurance, the Lord Jesus is near to us, and a future hope, Jesus will return. The future hope, as we've seen, the book of life, it's so vital of a perspective when it comes to interpersonal peace. Now in this passage, Paul is going to start framing our perspective when it comes to internal peace. Not just interpersonal peace amidst conflict, but internal peace amidst anxiety. And given this spiritual reality, he gives a famous passage on anxiety, prayer, and peace. It starts like this, verse 6a, 
Do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. I've been a Christian you know, for a while. It's a really famous verse on anxiety. I've seen it written on plaques. I, I, I've seen it written in cards that we would exchange to one another. It's such a clear, confident command, but honestly, it can leave my head scratching a little bit. It can leave my head scratching because, I mean, take, look at a few things. Uh, didn't you notice here that don't be anxious is a command? I mean, that not being anxious in Paul's mind and in God's word is a choice of obedience. But hold on. Is anxi- isn't anxiety something we can't control? Like, d- doesn't it just happen to us? I mean, I was on a road trip once, and Joyce, and my, my wife, was sitting on one side, and my brother was sitting on the other, and she goes, I'm so hungry right now. And my brother looks at her, and he says, don't be. <laughs> and we laughed about it because, because it was ludicrous. We think hunger is an impulse that you can't control. I can't just not be hungry at this. I'm hungry. I can't just not be. And sometimes we think to ourselves, isn't anxiety just like that? Like, is it really a choice, a command we can obey to just not be anxious? Isn't it just like hunger? Head scratcher. But there's more. Here's another head scratcher. Look at the scope of the command. He says, don't be anxious about anything. That's hard. I mean, it's it's easy to not be anxious about some things, but not to be anxious about anything. I mean, it's not easy. It's easy to not be anxious about what's going to be on the dinner table for myself tonight. But what about paying the next bill? What about job security? What about family who's in a health crisis and you don't know how they're gonna come out? What, what about for, for those of you who are looking forward to marriage one day, who I'm going to marry? What if you're standing in the mud of death and tragedy and you're looking out into a bleak future? Don't be anxious about anything. You see, this verse can sound so sweet and it sounds, sometimes it, when, when you just look at it and you don't dip, dig deeper, it sounds like that Bobby McFerrin song, Don't Worry, Be Happy. You know, it's just so upbeat. And you, while you're hearing it, your heart is warmed while the song is playing, but when the song ends, your heart cools down and you just think, I don't know if it's that simple. Because if we're really honest, it can, this verse can feel too simplistic. It can feel too idealistic. It can feel like anxiety is a light switch that you can turn on and off. But it doesn't feel that way. So how does the Bible resolve that? How does the Bible speak to that? Because as I said earlier, I think the Bible does have answers. Let's start by properly defining anxiety. D.E. Garland here again is helpful. It's on the screen. He says, the anxiety Paul warns against is the kind that unhinges, paralyzes, and incapacitates one. Anxious, harassing care. Paul is not calling for them to be indifferent toward life. The root idea of the verb to be anxious is to be pulled apart. To be pulled apart. That's what God is aiming at, by the way. Don't be pulled apart by your concerns. See, he's saying, surely you will have concerns in life. And God's not telling you to not give a care in the world. In fact, we are called to care and have concern. In the book of Philippians, Paul talks about his concerns a lot. He says, he says he's anxious for a sick Epaphroditus, Philippians 2.28. And he uses the same word when describing Timothy's concern for the church's welfare, Philippians 2, verse 20. You're supposed to care. You're supposed to have concerns. But here's the difference. It doesn't mean that you're pulled apart by your concerns. Does that make sense? 
He, the verse basically says, be concerned about many things, but be pulled apart by nothing. You can be concerned, you should be, but don't be pulled apart by your concerns. And that's a helpful line which delineates legitimate concern with illegitimate anxiety. When your concerns start to pull you apart, when, they, when you're on your bed and you're resting and you're rolling, by the way, most research, research says your worrying is most done at night. When you're tossing and turning and when it's starting to pull you apart, you have to stop and say, God, is this unbiblical anxiety? And if it is, God tells you to put it away. He's not saying get rid of all your concerns. It's not the same as just saying stop being hungry. Because hunger is a foundational need. Concern, there will be concern. But what he's saying is you have to stop letting it pull you apart. Martin Luther puts it this way. You cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. Like birds flying over your heads, concerns will come. And sometimes you can't control those concerns. What you can control is being anxiously pulled apart by them. What you can control is anxiety building a nest in your hair. Be concerned, but be anxious over nothing. I feel like that's still half the answer. But thankfully, we're only through half the verse. How do we do that? How do we keep anxiety from nesting in our hair? Keep reading. Verse 6 again. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. What's the prescription to pulling apart anxiety? Prayer. J. Michael Hugh puts it really succinctly. He says this. The way to be anxious about nothing is to be prayerful about everything. See, being anxious about nothing is only half the coin. There has to be something to combat that, to do something about that. It's just the negative side. Don't be anxious. What's the positive side? Be prayerful. Be prayerful about everything. With consistent emphasis, yet a variety of vocabulary in this verse, the answer is prayer. Prayer, a broad word for worshipful, worshipful devotion. The answer is supplication. It's a narrow word for asking God to supply your needs. The answer is thanksgiving. It's a general attitude of gratitude. And in all, the answer is taking the simple yet faith-filled step of bringing your requests to God. Saying, God, these are my requests. You might think to yourself, does that really help my anxiety? Especially if I don't know if I'm going to get what I asked for, is that really going to help with my anxiety? But the problem is still right in front of me. I'm still anxious about it. The answer ultimately is yes. And it's not because you'll get the things you'll ask for. The answer is yes, because in prayer, you will find more than an app to order things to be delivered to your life. You will find, in prayer, your Father. You won't find an app to order, that will deliver more things that you can order to your door, but you will find your loving Father. Look at Matthew chapter 7. This is what Jesus has to say about God's fatherly love in prayer. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your, heaven, will your Father who is in heaven good gifts to those, give good gifts to those who ask him? This is one of... Jesus' foundational teachings on prayer. And you know what his point is? God is the Father who loves to hear the requests of his children. 
Do you want to hear one of the greatest joys, my, one of my greatest joys as a dad? When I'm seeing my kids struggle and they just come up to me and they say, Daddy, can you help me? And it changes things. It changes things for them and it changes things for me. That's why God wants you to present your request to him. You know, oftentimes I'll see them struggling with something and they just refuse to ask for help. They're figuring it out. Can I help you with your shoes? No, I got it. <laughs> they want to put on their shirt. I'm like, I can help you with that. No, I got it. And you're just standing there as a parent and inside you're thinking, just ask for help. I'm waiting. And one, you'll get, I'll help you get your shoes on. But two, you'll also get me. I'm waiting because I see your need and my arms are open, but you just have to ask. You don't have right now because you don't ask. James 4. But when they do come, I'm like, oh, sweetie, tell me everything. Tell me everything that's going on at school. Tell me everything that's on your mind. Leave nothing out. That's who your father is. He wants all of your burdens. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all, all your anxieties on him because why? He cares for you. He wants the burden off of your shoulders and onto his. And you might think, oh, that's a neat illustration, but it's more than that because it's your very real status with your heavenly father today. Have you ever looked at a rich family, for, for example, and thought, man, their kids probably don't have to worry about anything. You're that kid. You have an even better and even greater and even richer father. And when you truly see that, you'll start to see. You'll, you'll stop and you'll say, I will choose to not be anxious. I will choose to see my father the way he really is ultimately good and powerful. I will choose to see me the way he sees me, that I'm more valuable than birds. I'm more valuable than the lilies, lilies of the field, that he has me. And that the proof of the pudding is that he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for me. And if he did that thing, of course he'll do the little things in my life. Anxiety isn't an uncontrollable impulse. You can look at your anxieties and say, I will choose to believe that my father is who he says he is. He's the same father who sent the son, and so he will send for my anxieties today. That's how we can choose to not be anxious. It's amazing. It's amazing. Do you know what happens when you do that? Look at verse seven. It says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. As I said, it seems, can often sound like too simple. It can often sound like too much of a pat answer that you just pray and the peace of God will come. But look, look who's saying this. Paul is not just saying it, he is living it right now. Like here is Paul, the guy in prison, shackled in chains probably to a Roman soldier beside him. He's saying, don't be anxious, pray and the peace of God will come. If there is anyone who has the authority to give us that word, it's him in that moment. And you see, Paul, that he has this peace that surpasses knowledge, that defies logic. You see it earlier in, our, in this series. Look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 18 to 20. He says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your, what? Prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He's saying, I know prayer works. I can rejoice. It is hard because through your prayers, this is going to turn out for me. Oh, and by the way, I don't know how it's actually going to turn out. He continues, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He doesn't know if he's going to die. He doesn't know if he's going to survive this. All he knows, he's confident that Christ will be honored in his body. 
This is a piece that is so confusing. This is a piece that surpasses knowledge. Paul is saying, I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to have, I have peace through prayer that things will turn out whether I live or die. What a peace. Doesn't know if he's going to survive. That's a peace that surpasses knowledge. And you know why? Because for Paul and the Bible, peace isn't defined as better circumstances. Today, and I mean, I, I googled peace and I find the definition. The first thing that came out, tranquility. The world tends to define peace as sunny days or still waters or blue skies smiling at me. But if that's what peace is, he would never have that peace in prison because it turns out that peace is not calm waters. Peace is a strong flood wall that guards against stormy waters. Peace is not calm waters. It is a strong flood wall that guards against stormy waters. I think on the screen we have a picture of a flood wall. We don't have a lot of floods in Canada, so we don't have a lot of these. This is in Pennsylvania. It's this really, really tall wall. These tall barriers designed to keep floods and storms from coming in. They gotta keep those out. It's a guard. And that's what our passage is saying. By the way, do you know what peace is? It's not just tranquility. It's not just still waters. It's the wall that guards against stormy waters. Do you know what the proof is there? Look at verse seven again. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will what? Guard. Guard. It's not just tranquility. It will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Peace doesn't come and go with the weather. It guards your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. That's what peace does. It guards. It defends. That's the peace of God. And the word really is a military image. Do you know what it, do you know what it should conjure up? It literally means to take into protective custody. Guard, to take into uh, protective custody. And right here, you see Paul living out the sweetest of ironies. Because as Paul writes, he's probably in prison, and and he is in protective protective custody. He is chained to a Roman guard, probably. And and he's uh, guarded by guards, and they will watch him and be with him through his every single move. And do you know what he does? He points at that, and he says, that's how close the peace of God is for you. That's how close the peace of God guards. That when I, when I have to go to the bathroom, these guards are coming with me because they're chained to me. That's what the peace of God does. Guards. It holds you in protective custody. See, in the physical realm, he says, I may be chained close to these Roman soldiers, but in the spiritual realm, I am tethered even tighter to the peace of God. I'm going to say that again. I don't, I, I, I don't think you caught it. In the, in the physical realm, I, I'm, I'm chained so close to these Roman guards, but in the spiritual realm, I am tethered even tighter to the peace of God. That is the truth. That's how the peace of God, the peace of God guards. Oh, brothers and sisters, our hearts may fail. Our minds may drift. But in Jesus Christ, we remain tethered to the peace of God that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. I'm going to guess that I'm not the only one in the room who has a sore need of peace today. And maybe you're like me. And you get to that place where you're anxious. My call to you is to stop and pray. I find for myself, I find myself getting anxious about things I haven't even prayed about. I'm prayerlessly anxious because we live in the West. I mean, we can find solutions on our phone and on the internet and all those things. Well, what need is there to pray? We can find solutions on our own. Stop and pray, please. Stop and pray. Remind your heart of hearts. Heart, Andrew's heart, 
You don't even have the license to be anxious if you haven't prayed for it yet. Oh, how prone I am to fret over things and proceed to never pray for them. I don't have a license to, pray, to be anxious over that which I haven't prayed for. If that's you, if you're anxious, but you're also prayerless, stop and pray. Put down the phone. Put Google away. Start to pray. But for others, maybe you are praying. And maybe it feels like the waters and the waves are still crashing in on you. First off, I have to say this. It's, it's right to mourn the pain and brokenness of our world under sin. Blessed are those who mourn. It's okay. Don't, I hope you're not hearing this as, okay, it's bad to mourn. It's right to mourn. Secondly, it's really okay to wrangle with your hearts before God. That's what all the Psalms of lament are. If you're going through something tough, lament to him. But here's my counsel to you. Don't stop presenting your requests to God. See, the thing about the laments is this. They're taking all the requests and they're saying, I'm going through something hard, God, but here it is. Here it is. But do you know what our danger is in the West? Our danger is that we start presenting our, uh, our requests to other things. We think, okay, maybe my job will alleviate my anxieties. Job, here are my requests. Please solve it. You might think, maybe a new romantic relationship, maybe that will alleviate my, my anxieties. And so a new romantic relationship comes along, and you're like, romantic relationship, here are my requests. I present my requests to you. Does that make sense? Keep requesting. Keep bringing your requests to God. And I assure you, the peace of God will come. It might not get calmer, but the flood walls, the flood walls will get stronger. Number one, peace is paid for. So joyfully unite. Number two, the peace of God is near. Don't be anxious. Pray. And finally, number three, the peace of God is here. Immerse yourself. The peace of God is here. Immerse yourself. As glorious as it is to have this eternal perspective, as glorious as it is to see this guarding peace of God, sometimes we can get to this point and think something is still missing. Because here's some issues. I, I know peace is paid for me, but I tend to forget that eternal perspective. Number two, I know the peace is near, but sometimes that can feel abstract. What does that really feel like? Do you know what you're missing ultimately? What you're missing isn't new truth, new revelation, new concepts. What we're missing is a person. Because we need more than just information or even the peace of God to dwell with us. We need an amazing person to dwell with us. We need the God of peace to dwell with us. Have you ever been, found yourself uh, in a position where you're anxious and, uh, and people are sending you messages, giving you new information to cheer you up, but the anxiety only lists when someone actually comes and visits you and holds your hand and says, I'm here, don't be anxious. That's what we need. We need more than just information. We need a person. And this is how our text ends. Verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and heard and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace. The God of peace. Do you notice the difference from verse 7? Look up at verse 7. Verse 7 talks about the peace of God being near. But here, this verse talks about the God of peace being near. In this verse, you get far better promises because you don't just get the substance, you get the source. You don't just get the water, you get the wellspring of peace. You don't just get the peace God brings, you get the peace-bringing God. 
And this is such an important reality in the New Testament, but I fear we've lost its significance because the the God of peace being with us was so central that for so many of Paul's letters, it was his formula to end the letter. He would say, may the God of peace be with you. And for us as modern years, it might evoke that Star Wars message, may the force be with you. But I fear we often think about the God of peace in the same way, just some ethereal, intangible force being with us, but that is not true. We do not have an it with us. We have a him. We have the God of peace, and he's our closest companion. You might sit there and reply, okay, yeah, I get it. I mean, he's with us, like generally, right? He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. So yeah, he's with us. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, he is so much more than that. How, you may ask? Well, first, Jesus Christ was born on this, wor- on this earth to be with us. And his title, he was the Prince of Peace. And he was backed by a chorus of angels singing, On earth, peace among those whom he is pe- pleased. Our Prince of Peace came to bring peace among us. He was the God of peace with us. And he didn't just come. At his death, our Prince of Peace took his throne, not by conquest, but you know what happened? He became a peace offering for us. A peace offering was an unblemished sacrifice whose blood was poured out. It was extremely costly to bring peace between the person sacrificing and God. That's who Jesus was. He was the unblemished sacrifice, blood shed for you, that you might have peace with our God, with our God. So that in Romans chapter 5, Paul can say, therefore being justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He takes your burden of sin so you can have eternal rest. Come to him, you who are burdened and heavy laden. And not just that, when he ascended, he did not leave us stranded. He did not leave us as orphans and perhaps give us mere visits of his presence. No, Jesus prayed, the Father answered, and the Holy Spirit came, the very person of the Holy Spirit, our helper who gives peace like none other. That's what Jesus says in John chapter 14. He says this, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And this is what he says. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give, uh, my give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I won't just give you worldly peace, calm waters, blue skies, but here's what I will give. Here's what I prayed for the Father, and the Father sent. The, you, I'll send a helper. I'll send the person of the Holy Spirit, and he will dwell with you. Holy Spirit, he is the God of peace in you. If you're, united, if you're united to Jesus Christ by faith, do you know that he lives in you? The God of peace is in you. You're not an orphan. The God of peace is in you. He's going to teach you all things. The God of peace is in you. So by faith, as this passage says, you can think about these glorious things. You can practice the things of God, the God of peace in you to think about and practice godliness or as Paul puts in 1 Timothy 4, to immerse yourself in these things. Do you know how it's all tied together? He's saying this, Paul's saying this, dwell on godliness as God dwells in you. Dwell on godliness as God dwells in you. Dwell on the God who dwells in you. And you see, what will happen is the Holy Spirit who dwells in you will produce fruit upon fruit. You will be like a tree planted by streams of water where the leaf doesn't wither and you will stand in the middle of the storm. That's true peace from the God of peace. 
And the best news that yet is this. Our God of peace doesn't stop there. Paul prays in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, Now the, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will surely do it. And when he does, on that day, you're going to see your Prince of Peace again. Jesus Christ, the one who was born to make peace. The one who became your peace offering. The one who sent his spirit of peace to live inside of us today. And you'll see your names in the book of life. But not only that, you will find them engraved on the very palms of his hands. Number one, peace is paid for, joyfully unite. Number two, the peace of God is near. Don't be anxious, pray. Finally, the God of peace is here. Immerse yourself. Dwell on the God who dwells in you. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are the God of peace. I thank you that you are the Prince of Peace come to reconcile us to you, to, bring, to make peace between us and you. And I thank you that we're not just in this in-between period, not having Jesus and not having the Father yet, but God, that you did not leave us as orphans, that your spirit bears witness with our spirit, that we are children of God, that we are not orphans. God, I pray for every heart in this room, Lord, I pray where there may be conflict or anxiety, God, God of peace, would you reconcile? Would you reconcile all conflicts? God, where there is uh, internal turmoil, where there is anxiety, will you not only just, would you not only bring your peace, would you bring your very self? Would you speak louder and louder and louder in hearts? Lord, it says your word, you bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So God, would you take the stand? Would you stand up in the witness box and say, yes, he's my son. Yes, she's my daughter. I did the big thing. Christ did the big thing to win this person into my family. I'll take care of the rest. Perhaps not the way they want. Perhaps not the way they would have scripted. But God, will you speak really loud? Would you bear witness louder than their doubts? Louder than their fears? God, you are the, peace, you're the God of peace who lives in us. It is amazing truth. I thank you that we have strength. No, not through our means, not through our strengths not through our endeavors, but through Christ who lives in us. We thank you in your most precious name we pray. Amen. For more resources or information about Hope Church, visit HopeTorontoNorth.com.